Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Perfect Woman by Robert Sheckley. This is first published in Amazing Stories, December 1953, January 1954. Um, sort of a combined issue, I guess. And uh, I and I don't know if you noted, but in the PDF, uh, I normally do not can keep the little cartoons that they sometimes put in, or I always remove the ads. Um, if not just to save toner, um, because it's just usually not relevant, but I just thought that the cartoon in here was pretty cute. Did you note it, make note of it in your version? I did, but I assume that the magazine editor was the one who chose to include the cartoon, and I don't presume that Sheckley meant it as an integral part of the story. I, I, I completely agree with you. Sheckley probably had no idea that that would be there. However, um... I just I love this period because they are obsessed with robots in a way that I don't see people obsessed with robots uh, prior or uh, later. This is the the high point for robots, 1953-1954, and uh, I think this might be a robot story, but maybe not. Let's. Uh, would you read it for us and find out? Sure. The perfect woman. By, <laughs> that the story is by, but maybe the perfect woman is by Robert Sheckley. Mr. Morchek awoke with a sour taste in his mouth and a laugh ringing in his ears. It was George Owen Clark's laugh, the last thing he remembered from the Triad Morgan party. And what a party it had been. All Earth had been celebrating the turn of the century, the year 3000. Peace and prosperity to all, and happy life. How happy is your life, Owen Clark had asked, grinning slyly, more than a little drunk. I mean, how is life with your sweet wife? That had been unpleasant. Everyone knew that Owen Clark was a primitivist. But what right had he to rub people's noses in it? Just because he had married a primitive woman. I love my wife, Morchek had said stoutly. And she's a hell of a lot nicer and more responsive than that bundle of neuroses you call your wife. But of course, you can't get under the thick hide of a primitivist. Primitivists love the faults in their women as much as their virtues. More, perhaps. Owen Clark had grinned ever more slyly and said, you know, more check, old man. I think your wife needs a checkup. Have you noticed her reflexes lately? Insufferable idiot. Mr. Morchek eased himself out of bed, blinking at the bright morning sun, which hid behind his hurt curtains. Myra's reflexes. The hell of it was there was a germ of truth in what Owen Clark had said. Of late, Myra had seemed rather out of sorts. Myra, Morchek called. Is my coffee ready? There was a pause. Then her voice floated brightly upstairs. In a minute. Morchek slid into a pair of slacks, still blinking sleepily. Thanks, Stat, the next three days were celebration points. He'd need all of them just to get over last night's party. Downstairs, Myra was bustling around, pouring coffee, folding napkins, pulling out his chair for him. He sat down and she kissed him on his bald spot. 
He liked being kissed on his bald spot. How's my little wife this morning, he asked. Wonderful, darling, she said after a little pause. I made selfiners for you this morning. You like selfiners. Morchek bit into one, done to a turn, and sipped his coffee. How do you feel this morning, he asked her. Myra buttered a piece of toast for him, then said, Wonderful, darling. You know, it is a perfectly wonderful party last night. It was. I loved every moment of it. I got a little bit veery, Morchek said with a wry grin. I love you when you're veery, Myra said. You talk like an angel, like a very clever angel, I mean. I could listen to you forever. She buttered another piece of toast for him. Mr. Morchek beamed on her like a benignant sun, then frowned. He put down his self in her and scratched his cheek. You know, he said, I had a little ruck in with Owen Clark. He was talking about primitive women. Myra buttered a fifth piece of toast for him without answering, adding it to the growing pile. She started to reach for a sixth, but he gently touched her hand lightly. He bent forward and kissed him on the she bent forward and kissed him on the nose. Primitive women, she scoffed. Those neurotic creatures, aren't you happier with me, dear? I may be modern, but no primitive woman could love you the way I do, and I adore you. What she said was true. Man had never in all recorded history been able to live happily with unreconstructed primitive woman. The egotistic, spoiled creatures demanded a lifetime of care and attention. It was notorious that Owen Clark's wife made him dry the dishes and the fool put up with it. Primitive women were forever asking for money with which to buy clothes and trinkets, demanding breakfast in bed, dashing off to bridge games, talking for hours on the telephone, and stat knows what else. They tried to take over men's jobs. Ultimately, they proved their equality. Some idiots like Owen Clark insisted on their excellence. Under his wife's enveloping love, Mr. Morchek felt his hangover seep slowly away. Myra wasn't eating. He knew that she had eaten earlier so that she could give her full attention to feeding him. It was little things like that that made all the difference. He said your reaction time had slowed down. He did, Myra asked after a pause. Those primitives think they know everything. It was the right answer. But it had taken too long. Mr. Morchek asked his wife a few more questions, observing her reaction time by the second hand on the kitchen clock. She was slowing up. Did the mail come, he asked her quickly. Did anyone call? Will I be late for work? After three seconds, she opened her mouth, then closed it again. Something was terribly wrong. I love you, she said simply. Mr. Morchek felt his heart pound against his ribs. He loved her madly, passionately, but that disgusting Owen Clark had been right. She needed a checkup. Myra seemed to sense his thought. She rallied perceptibly and said, all I want is your happiness, dear. I, I think I'm sick. W will you have me cured? Will you take me back after I'm cured and not let them change me? I, I wouldn't want to be changed. Her bright head sank on her arms. She cried noiselessly so as not to disturb him. 
It'll just be a checkup, darling, Morchek said, trying to hold back his own tears. But he knew as well as she knew that she was really sick. It was so unfair, he thought. Primitive woman with her coarse mental fiber her almost Im- was almost immune to such ailments. But delicate modern woman with her finely balanced sensibilities was all too prone. So monstrously unfair. Because modern woman contained all the finest, dearest qualities of femininity. Except stamina. Myra rallied again. She raised herself to her feet with an effort. She was very beautiful. Her sickness had put a high color in her cheeks, and the morning sun highlighted her hair. My darling, she said, won't you let me stay a little longer? I I may recover by myself. But her eyes were fast becoming unfocused. Darling, she caught herself quickly, holding on to an edge of the table. When you have a new wife... Try to remember how much I loved you. She sat down, her face blank. I'll get the car, Morchek murmured, and hurried away. Any longer and he would have broken down himself. Walking to the garage, he felt numb, tired, broken. Myra, gone. And modern science, for all its great achievements, unable to help. He reached the garage and said, all right, back out. Smoothly, his car backed out and stopped beside him. Anything wrong, boss? His car asked. You look worried. Still got a hangover? No, it's Myra. She's sick. The car was silent for a moment. Then it said softly, I'm very sorry, Mr. Morchek. I wish there were something I could do. Thank you, Morchek said. Glad to have a friend at this hour. I'm afraid there's nothing anyone can do. The car backed to the door. And Morchek helped Myra inside. Gently, the car started. It maintained a delicate silence on the way back to the factory. So, uh, Jess. I, yeah. Is it a comedy? I, I want to laugh. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but um, I think this is a hilarious story. And also, yeah, very poignant, I guess, as well. Tell me more. Well, uh, I, lo- I love how short it is. This this could be a whole novel. This could be um, a whole world. Uh, you know, there's so many questions about. I I thought you would like this story because it has a, a number of the touches. I note I note that you are sort of a pioneer in in um, in noting in science fiction. The transformed language in here is pretty great. I appreciate you bringing that up. You want to uh, explain what 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 we mean by that term? Well, I think I best let you do that. I've heard you talk about it, but I'm no expert in it. Well, um, what 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 is transformed language? Transformed language is a term that I use for language. It, it's common in science fiction. It's it exists, but it's less common in other uh, fiction. It, it's uh, a word that we know as a transformation of some other word. And so we can tell that we are not in Kansas anymore. And not only can we tell we're not in Kansas, but we can tell how far from Kansas we are and in what direction. Um, for example, uh, a, a just, just a new word, a neologism, um, could be made out of 
anything. We could say, I'd like a groomf. And you'd say, well, okay, do I have a groomf? What's a groomf? We don't know. Um, but if you make a portmanteau word, which is a neologism, um, we know that chortle is a combination of chuckle and snort. I mean, Lewis Carroll, when he invents the word portmanteau, tells us that. But here we have words that um, aren't just portmanteaus, that we just understand that the word is new, but they represent a, a movement from the time in which the words that they began as were. So they have been transformed. So here we are in the year 3000, and uh, the fellow says, uh, I got a little veery. Well, mm. what exactly is veery? Um, it's a little hard to tell, but um, it says, you know, she says, I, I love you when you're veery. You talk mm. like an angel. I could listen to you forever. So somehow veery means that you are talking too long. Well, maybe you're not to the point. So your your speech is veering off topic. Mm. So, you know, you're a little veery. That's not a portmanteau word. You've taken the word veer and you've taken and, and you've transformed it into a new word, which, OK, the language has really had a chance to grow. Um, the, the fellow says that he had a ruck in with mm -hmm. uh, Owen Clark. And, you know, I, I thought, oh, a ruck in. Ah, yes. They had some kind of a verbal disagreement. Um, they had a run in that was a ruckus. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it. But it's not just a portmanteau it, because it's not one that immediately presents itself as understandable to us the way, uh, for example, um, uh, let's we've got them all all, the, all over the place now. Um, she was um, quaffed Right. Her hair was <laughs> quaffed you know, and we, and we saw, OK, we know it was well quaffed and it was fantastic and it's just they go together but um but this ruck in eh, it doesn't just go together you have to look at the whole context of the story and then figure out how this became an appropriate word so it's a transformed it's transformed language we know what the language was transformed from by seeing what it transformed into and that tells us how far we have come and there are a number of other examples in this story of transformed language I rather liked it as well. So thanks, Jesse, if you nominated this story in part so I could find those things. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Oh, you know, uh, I was thinking about what Veery meant. It's, it sounds like a little bit like Weary as well, but uh, I don't think he was Veery, uh, uh, Weary <laughs> as in tired. But um, especially with the ending, with the, with the car saying, hey, how's that hangover? Uh, it sounds like the car drives itself, right? Yep. Um, so we don't need to worry about him getting into a drunk driving accident. However, um, you still have to walk around yourself and, uh, you, you know, if you veer out of your lane while driving, that's a good sign you're, uh, sleeping or, or, uh, drunk, right? At the, on the, on the road. Well, you know, walking around people who are drunk, they stagger, right? They, they veer <laughs> this way and that way. Um, but yeah, it works with dialogue as well. It, what's wonderful is that it doesn't tell you anything. I don't know if it was an accident uh, when you're reading, but um, uh, I thought, well, maybe it's a typo, but no, it's not. Um, 
Sefiners. It, we never find out what Sefiners are, is. You know, I tried my darndest to find out what a Sefiner was, and what I discovered was that there is, in fact, no word in English that looks like a Sefiner. So, I mean, there are words that look like it, but there's not a Sefiner. But it's written with capital S, and she's yeah, clearly— it's a brand, I think, right? Well, I don't think so. Here's what I have decided, and I could be well wrong about this, but we have uh, – there are things like frankfurters, right, and mm-hmm. hamburgers, right? There are foods that are made from – you know, this is a sausage from Frankfurt. This is a meat patty from Hamburg, right? There are f- the foods that end that way, and mm-hmm. a, there is a jelly donut, which we know in a, the United States because – uh, our erstwhile president, John Kennedy, uh, made a famous mistake in German when he went to the Berlin Wall before it fell, obviously, and expressed his solidarity with the people of Berlin by saying, Ich bin ein Berliner, which means he thought, I am someone from Berlin, because a Berliner is, in fact, a Berliner. But the correct German grammar is, Ich bin Berliner, I am I'm Berliner, the way I would say I'm American. If you say, ich bin ein Berliner, it's like saying, I am a Danish, mm. because a Berliner is a jelly donut. So I assumed that um, when Sheckley wrote this, a Sefener with a capital S was like a Berliner. It was a particular pastry that he was having with his coffee that she made for him. I could be wrong. But I... But I love. But I, it sounds like you didn't notice it, and I think that's even better. Oh, I um, did notice when, it. No, no. In your reading, you didn't call it a sefiner. You called it a selfiner, and oh. you kept calling it a selfiner. And I thought that's perfect because what is this all about? What is this story all about? It's not about. It's not about uh, you know an equal relationship in, that the uh, the primitivists have with each other, where they have to put up and love the faults of each other rather this is about a guy who has a robot wife essentially um a guy who only cares about what the woman can do for him in a certain sense and the the wonderful little touches that show that is that when his wife is crying she weeps silently so that it doesn't disturb him right which is so like if you're designing a a wife in a factory well you want her to be pretty and you want her to be uh you know to meet all your needs but you don't want any of the negative things like to be disturbed by her crying so if she has to cry make her cry silently right make the programming in that way um and of course it's 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 wonderful, wonderful, humorous sort of satire of I don't know American culture in in the early fifties, but it's also subversive. I love this story. The ending, we find out it's not just uh, it's not just the the people who uh, you know the the husbands and the wives who well. The wives, anyways, they can be subverted, and and you know you can instead of having a quote unquote human wife, if that's what they are, because notice they don't say a, a human wife and a robot wife. Right. It's the year three thousand, after all. Um, we're beyond such concepts. Well, what what's so awesome here 
is that when Mr. Morchek finds his wife sad, he becomes sad, and he becomes so sad that he says if he's not careful, he will break, which makes it seem like he's a robot too. The car's a robot, and he calls it a friend. It's good to have a friend. Yeah. Everybody's a robot in this society, and even the people, if the primitive man and the primitive woman, or at least the primitive woman who, we, the unrefined um, ones with stamina, right? Right. The, if those are the only humans left, they don't seem to have a serious problem with the robots that are all around them that are like people. And I think that that's just wonderful. I, because robots are symbols. They're not, at this point anyways, they're symbols for humanity and different relationships that people can have rather than, I mean, that's what a lot of people want as a spouse is basically a, a free slave labor, right? Well, certainly there were people who would have argued this, um, they wouldn't have put it in such negative terms. They would, though, have, in fact, they've been male chauvinists. There's no doubt. This is this is uh, Levittown. Um, and the little woman is supposed to stay home and do things stereotypically in order to make herself uh, attractive and serviceable to her husband. Uh, we see the only only male modern we see is actually the car. We don't see any modern male humans. Um, I have a trouble. I have a problem with this this story uh, in understanding it. Uh, there are bi-stable images like the famous um, duck or rabbit or the maiden or crone, you know, where you can look at them and mm -hmm. they look two different ways. Um, here, one way to look at this story, and I want to pick up your term subversive here. One way to look at the story is if there is a radical, radical criticism being made of male chauvinism. Uh, mm -hmm. right? uh, this guy, you know, he likes getting his ball spot kissed. Uh, he's mm -hmm. aging, but he wants to be thought of as sexy. Um, she doesn't. He knows that she ate before he was there. I don't know. Even in those idealized, stereotypical Levittowns, um, one thought of the family dinner where the husband and wife were eating together. There is no sense of children here. He doesn't want a wife to be a co-parent. He doesn't want he would rather know that she's serving him by not eating with him than share a meal with him. The reality is she doesn't eat at all. She's a machine. Uh, but he would rather think of it some other way. She needs to go for a checkup. It's interesting. She needs to go to a checkup. It, I love this sentence because here's where something pops up to me, at least whether or not Sheckley meant it. It'll just be a checkup, darling. More check said. And I mm. can't help but wonder if that strange name he has more check is mm -hmm. that he has he represents all of the people who have said, well, is this good enough? Is that good enough? Is this good enough? Mm -hmm. Is that good enough? And by constantly trying to say, well, no, nah, it should be better this way, better that way, better that. The only way you can finally succeed at all that is to have someone utterly dehumanized. And whether you make them real robots or not, you have dehumanized them. This then becomes a critique of what the patriarchy has done to women in say, suburban society in 1953 or four. However, 
this clearly is not meant to talk about the real future, right? If, if you could have a car that responds to voice commands and it, um, it drives itself, why do you need to walk to the garage to get it? Right? You can summon it. Clearly, um, there are lots of ways to have things done. This is not really a thousand years in the future. Anybody could tell that in 1953 and four. It's clearly all metaphoric. So the question mm -hmm. is, is the metaphor one that says the men are having a problem and they need to be better? Or is it one that says, huh, you know, women are disposable. You might like them, but let's face it, you can go back to the factory and get another one. And the car that drives you there is as good a friend as you're going to get. Mm -hmm. um, is, is Robert Sheckley really the way I would prefer to see this story criticizing male chauvinism or is he using this story, which could be seen as very funny. You, you think of it as hilarious and I, I can understand that. Is he using this to say, you know what? The technology isn't really quite there yet. That will be really funny until we get the bugs worked out. <laughs> I cannot help but note that um, I prefer the first reading. I think it's the more enlightened reading. That is, it's, it's uh, more enlightened philosophically to find a story that supports that position. But Robert Sheckley did have five wives. <laughs> oh, you might be thinking of Philip K. Dick. I don't know how many I believe they both had, have. I believe he had five wives. Wow. Well, you want to check while we're we're chatting here? Uh, you're great. Yes, I, I could. You're great at getting um, data. But you see what I mean about here? There are two ways to read this. It could be a funny story about how the the uh, the technology hasn't quite got there yet, or it could be a really grim story about where we're trying to push the technology. And how that really expresses male chauvinism. Yeah, it, it has. I think it it has both, and it's also it's it's got some amazing like symbolic imagery that's tied right into that. Sorry, did you want me to go in a different direction there? No, no, no. Okay, please. Uh, so well, one of the things I noticed, other than the the name that that. Uh, Morchek, that's an odd name, right? I noticed that Owen Clark is a compound name, right? Yes. It's almost like he and his wife took each other's name, which is, I guess, a thing that you do uh, if you're strange and you don't think the patriarch, right? Um, we never learned Myra's last name. I assume it's Morchek. Um, but he's... I think he's replacing his wife at the end of the story in the same way that he's re he would be replacing his car, right? Going in to have it serviced. Yeah. Right. He's replacing his car. Well, it's a friend. What? What? It doesn't matter. And with the capitalization on the Sefners, right? It makes me think that everything's a product. That that modern or sorry, um, modern woman <laughs> is is a product name. It doesn't say you know trademark after it. But it has that. And yet, you know, you, you said uh, she doesn't eat. I, I don't know. It sounds like he's either deluded about 
the fact or prefers to think that she doesn't eat. But if he's a robot too, which I think is very possible, um, the fact that he's balding, right, is, is bizarre. But on the other hand, um, we might program in all sorts of things into uh, robots. I don't know if, if the robots themselves become consumers. This is sort of the thing that Philip K. Dick is dealing with. But there's this beautiful imagery um, that's very subtle. It's only mentioned twice. I want to read it. The first one is on page 119 of our document in the first column. It says, insufferable idiot. He's thinking back uh, to the conversation they had had the night before. This is, I guess, New Year's Day, 3001 or 3000. Insufferable idiot, Mr. Morchek eased himself out of bed, blinking at the bright morning sun, which hid behind his curtains. The sun is hiding. And then, when the truth, when he finally agrees, and and we think back about this story about how how actually that Owen Clark, he's actually not a jerk at all. He's just saying, he's just remarking, you know, I think um, I think there might be something wrong with your wife. You might want to have her checked. He's not bragging about his own wife. He's saying, yeah, I have to do the dishes, right? Um, when we finally find out for the, for the truth that, yeah, she's definitely got a problem, Myra does. I'll read this, this uh, on the last page. Myra rallied again. She raised herself to her feet with an effort. She was very beautiful. Her sickness had put a high color in her cheeks, and the morning sun highlighted her hair. This, the idea of the sun, right, after the, after the dawn of the new day and thinking back of the conversation he'd had that he was so fighting against the ruckin that he had, the truth comes through. It's a beautiful sort of just color image that underscores what's going on in the story. Our hero is kind of the villain. We're agreed on that. It does seem to me that um, I, I'm... I like playing with the idea that that he is a robot himself, but I, I think while there are reasons to understand that the technology is handled in, if I may use this term, unrealistic ways, um, I think since we know that Myra was at the party, since she was there to listen to uh, Morchek when he was being veery, um, if she were a robot and Morchek were a robot, I don't know why Owen Clark would not have just said to her, are your reflexes getting a little slow? I mm. think I think she is clearly his possession. And the way this I agree. is written, it seems to me that robots are the possessions of people. The, the feminist urgency here is that what Owen Clark suggests, that they could in fact be equals. Um, that they aren't the possessions, that women are not the possessions of people. And if you're having trouble finding a woman who will be your possession, maybe you'd be better off buying one. Not to use your term, you know, Jesse, slave, that would be wrong. Mm-hmm. But a robot. Um, so, you know, if, if 
if that's the kind of walking, talking, breakfast making, dildo, um, sex toy that you want, um, I guess you can have it. Uh, the the uh, this I think it's it's uh, he's subverting his own premise and I, I like that even more than I like the idea of just you know undercutting the character he's subverting not just the the idea that w- our expectations and crit- critiquing us and stabbing us with the with our own um, expectations but uh, if you read it uh, carefully. Um, and I, I, and listening to you reading it again, it just, I, I'm, I gone through again and highlighted things. Something was very, it was terribly wrong. Well, we assume that that's about, about her, that there's something wrong with Myra. She keeps pausing and slowing down and, and she makes this endless, nearly endless stack of toast, right? Yeah. She's on her fifth. She's reaching for her sixth, right? There's something wrong. And we think it's about her. Well, it's about their relationship, maybe. But actually, we, we go along a, a little bit more, right? And it says, "Darling, she caught the uh, she caught the edge of the table." And then we get this. I'll get the car. Morchek murmured and hurried away. He has to hurry away because he doesn't want to think about what's happening, right? Yeah. And, any longer, and he would have broken down himself. That is, I think, designed to be emotionally. Uh, read emotionally, like he'd he'd become upset. But my whole thesis with with robots is that robots in 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 this kind of science fiction are not robots in any more the, in the sense than we are. We are kind of robots. If I break down, I have to take myself to the repair shop, aka the hospital, and I'll right? be upset. <laughs> That's right, and and uh, you know the kind of emotional attachment I have to my car, uh, 27-year-old car, which I take to the repair shop all the time, is kind of like the r- emotional relationship um, I would have with. I'm loyal to my car in a certain sense because it's been loyal to me, right? I've never been married, Eric. You've been married. Would you prefer a perfect uh, modern woman to a uh, one that you have to cater to and, and dry the dishes for? <laughs> um, as you know, Jesse, this summer my wife and I uh, celebrated our 50th anniversary. <laughs> I think about my marriage, I've made that obvious. But about the story, there's always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.